socially distanced, 300 miles above the Earth, and exploring the universe from your own backyard. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. While many of us are struggling with the new normal of quarantining and self-isolation, for NASA astronauts, it's all part of the job. We'll catch up with retired NASA astronaut Mike Massimino about the importance of quarantining for space travelers and the lessons he learned while isolated from his family during his two missions to service the Hubble Space Telescope. We'll also talk about his book, which has now been adapted to a young adult novel, about how he became an astronaut in the first place. Then, with so many of us staying at home, what can we do to pass the time? Our panel of expert physicists say now is a great time to do some stargazing. A crash course in backyard astronomy from our expert scientists. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? But first, let's take a look at the latest space stories making headlines. Boeing says it will fly another uncrewed mission to the International Space Station to test its new capsule, Starliner. A mission late last year failed to reach the station. An audit found software glitches were to blame, causing the capsule to fire its engines incorrectly. The uncrewed test mission will prove to NASA the capsule is safe before flying astronauts to the ISS. Since the end of the space shuttle program in 2011, the agency has relied on Russia for rides to the station. Meanwhile, SpaceX, which is also working with NASA to provide rides to the station, is making final preparations for its first crewed launch. The company plans to fly NASA's Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley on its Crew Dragon capsule as early as this May. And even sooner, NASA astronaut Chris Cassidy is flying to the station this week, riding a Russian Soyuz capsule to the orbiting outpost Thursday morning. These stories and more on our website. Visit wmfe.org space or stay connected with me. Give me a follow on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. NASA's Mike Massimino was rejected from the astronaut corps three times. That didn't stop him from pursuing his childhood dream to become an astronaut, following in the footsteps of his hero, Neil Armstrong. His book, Spaceman, an astronaut's unlikely journey to unlock the secrets of the universe, has now been adapted for young readers. Mike joined us via Skype to talk about the books and how his unlikely journey took him twice to space. Yeah. Uh, and so I had this I always had this interest in it. I thought it was the coolest thing when they went to the moon. I thought the astronauts were the coolest guys ever. And I wanted to grow up to be like them. But then I realized that no, I'm not I'm not suited for this. And how the heck do you do that? I write in a book that, you know, for me, I, you know, uh, where I came from being a kid, uh, a kid like me, uh, you know, growing up to be an astronaut was like saying I want to grow up to be Spider-Man. You know, how the heck do you do that? <laughs> and I had no idea. You know, how do you, you know? It's like trying to become a superhero. No, it can't happen. Um, but I always had that interest. I, I also just naturally I liked math, math, math. And then as I got into some of the sciences where math was applied, like chemistry and physics, when I got to high school. That's what I really liked. I thought I'd be a math or a physics major in college. And then I found out about engineering and I just followed what I was interested in. I liked all my subjects in, in schools, but I did like some more than others. And I wanted to to become an engineer, uh, not knowing what I would even do with the engineering degree. And that's what I did. I went to college to study engineering, not thinking at all about the space program. To me, that was still a bit far fetched. But I went to college in the 1980s and the space shuttle program was starting then. So there, I knew there was something going on that was cool, but again, didn't really think much about it that I could ever do anything with it. When I was a senior in college, I went to the movies and saw the movie The Right Stuff. 
And that changed everything. I saw that movie. It rekindled my interest. It showed the camaraderie between the astronauts. What they were doing was really important. And I realized that that interest never really left. I still had that passion deep down inside of me that I had as a little boy. And uh, I went and read the book. It's a great book by Tom Wolfe. I read that book very quickly and started learning about what was going on at that time in the 1980s with the space program. And it was the space shuttle. And the astronauts had changed. Uh, it wasn't just military test pilots. It was now scientists and engineers. The first women were picked as astronauts for the space shuttle program. The first uh, people of color were picked. And I started realizing that maybe I wasn't really all that much different than the people they were picking at that time. I, I needed to get more experience. I needed to probably get more education to be a, to be a viable candidate, to be a competitive candidate. I didn't do much about it. I worked as an engineer for a couple of years after college, uh, but then I, I decided I needed to do something. And I started taking steps. Uh, the big step I took was to go to grad school at MIT and uh, try to work myself uh, toward a path that could get me more involved with the space program. I still never really thought that becoming an astronaut would be possible because I knew that was really competitive and going to be a tough thing to do. And it beyond my control, I felt... But I thought at least I could use my interests and, and my education and my passion to contribute to sending people to space. So that's what I started. I started to direct myself. And I did that. The big step for me was going to grad school um, after two years of working after college. And a spoiler alert, you do get accepted as an astronaut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that happened. You know, it's like, you know, the outcome is going to happen. I do eventually get picked. I, I started applying when I was in grad school. I got... I applied the first time and got a rejection letter. I applied a second time. I got another rejection letter. I applied a third time, got an interview. And the interview is a whole week. They get to know you pretty well, a lot of medical exams. And they got to know me really well during the interview. And as a result of that, they rejected me. In fact, I was <laughs> medically disqualified. And so I was I was medically disqualified. I get that overturned. I had a problem with the vision test. And um, I had to learn how to see better. And back then they didn't, this is all different now, uh, Brendan, it's completely different. But back then in, uh, this is the mid 1990s, uh, they, you needed to see pretty well uncorrected vision. You know, they don't, they got those requirements of all change. It's not a requirement anymore, but back then it still was. So you're, you're accepted in 1996. Um, you've done a lot of support work, um, in the astronaut corps. And then in the early two thousands is when you get to go to space. What, yeah. what was that? What was that moment when you knew that that this dream that you had as, as a young kid? When did you realize that it was a reality? Um, it, it, I guess it came in its steps. I, the, the real reality of it is one is when I got picked as an astronaut. It, it may sound strange, but I was I was almost as interested in becoming an astronaut and doing that job, um, and, which is not always flying in space. I mean, as an astronaut, you get involved with engineering of the spacesuits and tools and robotic operations and working in the control center and writing procedures and talking about the space program to different people. And uh, I realized back then um, that probably, uh, well, not probably, but for everybody, most of your astronaut career is spent on the ground. And so I felt pretty good about getting the job as an astronaut, even before I was flying in space, because I knew I would have a chance to directly contribute to things that I thought were important to get, find people in space. So that was part of it. And then the, the, the bigger part of it, of course, is when you actually get to fly. Um, but um, that, that happened for me. Uh, I was assigned to my flight after four years after being selected in 2000. And uh, you never know. I mean, 
you know, even after you get assigned to a flight, it's never really, you're never really going until the solid rockets light. Um, you know, you get, you think you're going to go, you're going to try to go, but something can always happen that can change things. Even when you're in the spaceship, you're thinking, okay, am I really going to really go? And once those rockets light, then you realize you are on your way. And yes, uh, I am, I am going. So I, I don't think I ever assumed that I'd ever go even after being selected. And it really wasn't when, until I was on my way, uh, rocking and rolling on the, on the space shuttle, <laughs> on the powered flight going up to orbit that I, that I really believe that it was really happening. That, the, that moment when you get to space, is it, did you talk to other astronauts and, and they described to you what, what it was going to look like, feel like, what it was going to be emotionally? Um, and, and did it meet those expectations? What, what were those first moments like? Yeah, my, as far as the, the, you talk to people about it, but mainly with astronaut talk, it's generally about what you do, like take it slow and make sure you have everything attached the way it's supposed to be because you're going to start floating and have a uh, have an emesis bag, which is a fancy word for a barf bag close by in case you feel sick because you're going to be in zero gravity. You're warned about those things. Um, the actual emotion of being there and actually getting there. And then the first thing uh, that a first-time space flyer does is get out of their seat and float to a window and look at the planet. And that's exactly what I did. That is, that is a, a, um, a pretty special moment. I, I think the engine's cutting and then having everything start to float around you, your arms just naturally float up. I had a pen on the end of a lanyard that started floating up. I took my helmet off cause I watched Apollo in Apollo 13. I watched Tom Hanks do this. I said, I want to do that someday. So I just released my helmet in front of me and let it float in front of me. And then you unstrap and get to that window. We were over the Indian Ocean looking down at the beautiful ocean and the the, uh, the clouds and the sun uh, shining off of it. Um, and that's that was the moment where you, you look at it and you, you've seen I've seen the photos and people try to describe it. But there's really no description to actually being there, seeing it. And then the first time I spacewalked was kind of another level of interaction with the the space environment and with the planet, because once you go out and spacewalk, you're no longer looking for a window. You're just looking through your visor and at our altitude at Hubble at 350 miles, hundred miles higher than station, we can see the curve of the planet and it looks like a paradise. I, I felt like I was looking into heaven, into an absolute paradise. The most beautiful sight I've ever seen is, is our planet. And you can look in the other direction and realize that it's only darkness in the other way. We have no other place to go. We've got to take care of this home. We've checked out the neighborhood. Earth is the best uh, best option we have. It's the only option we have. And it's beautiful, but it's also fragile. So those moments, those 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 moments that I had where I was able to take a break and just enjoy the view were the were the most special moments of, of my life. Mike, I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, thanks to the coronavirus, we're all now quarantined and isolated. Not uh, an unfamiliar feeling to an astronaut like yourself. Um, first of all, what was the quarantine process like before your trips to space? I'm, I'm sure NASA didn't want you sending any germs up there or infecting your crew. So what was that process like? Yeah, it's, it's very similar, Brendan, um, because for the quarantine part of it, just like we're dealing with now, is the objective is not to get sick. And you do not want to be sick going to space. Uh, it would really be amplified in a zero gravity uh, environment. You have a, a fluid shift without gravity. You tend to get a stuffy head um, as the fluid shifts the upper extremities without gravity keeping it in the right place. It takes a while for that to 
to adjust itself. So having a head cold even would be just a horrible situation. You also have to be able to clear your ears when you go to do your spacewalk. So we were really, really worried about contracting any sort of germs. Um, what NASA did is they put us in a quarantine to try to keep us away from germs. And if we had anything, it would give us a chance to get over any sickness we might have. Uh, they kept us away from small kids. On my first flight, my kids were in, still in elementary school. I wasn't allowed to be near them. <laughs> uh, my second flight, they were a little bit older, so I could see them. But you could only see people one at a time who were outsiders. So you're allowed one guest at dinner that could come and have dinner with you when we were in quarantine. And we were around each other. We always had a, a, a dock close by. Anyone that needed to come near us to help us with our training had to be checked out by a doctor. And we were living in our in crew quarters. We were not living at home. We moved into crew quarters where we each had a bedroom. Each of the crew members did. And we had a place we could have our meals and meetings and so on. So we were able to still do our work. But we were separated from everybody else and, and uh, were really concerned about getting sick. Not getting sick was the objective, similar to where we are now. So I think that phase of it is very similar to what we're going through, that part of it. Don't get sick. Keep yourself healthy. Now, um, obviously, you, you were separated down here on Earth before a flight. But also, you know, you were separated from your family some 300 miles above the Earth for, you know, an extended period of time. Um, how, how did how did you and your family deal with that kind of um, that that extreme social distancing? We'll call it. Yeah, you're away. You know, the the the, the only uh, issue with space that I had was that you don't get to bring your family and friends with you. You do have good, very good friends with you, my, especially my my crew on my second flight. Uh, some of the, the people I'm closest to in the world ever are my crewmates uh, that I flew with in space. And so it was wonderful to have them there, but you also want to share it with your other family and friends as best you can. Um, we have, even between my first and second flight, my first flight was in 02, my second flight was in 09. Even between those two flights, we got a lot better at being able to share the experiences. Um, we had email available to us. Uh, I was the first guy to tweet from space, so we had social media available, which was to me was huge because it gave me a chance to share my experiences with, uh, with the world. And I was the first one to do it, but now all the astronauts have Twitter accounts and Instagram and all kinds of things going on. And then uh, we also were able to, between my first and second flight, they introduced an internet protocol phone where you could actually call down to Earth and talk to people. And we had family family uh, conferences. My flights on the shuttle were uh, two weeks in duration. So you were gone for two weeks from the planet. So there's a little bit of isolation there for a couple of weeks. But Alan Bean, um, my friend who walked on the moon on his first flight and then he went uh, as a commander of a Skylab mission where he was gone for a few months. He said the difference between those two, he felt like going to the moon was, and the moon, the moon trips are fairly short, about a week or so. But he said going, he felt like going to the moon was like a, tri a, a vacation to Paris. And uh, going to Skylab for a few months was like real work. Cause mainly because you're away <laughs> and you're working all the time. So we, you know, with the shuttle flights, we were away. So we had that being away from home, uh, trying to, Try to stay in communication was the most important thing I felt for me. I, they, NASA sent me baseball scores every night, every day because I was a baseball fan. They would keep us updated on certain news items that we wanted to see. That was important to stay in touch. I think so. It's important, it's important, important to stay connected to what's going on on the planet. Now it's pretty much one major thing going on on the planet. But, but staying in contact with friends and family through email, uh, through, through the phone if we could, through a conference if we could, a, a, a video conference. That was really important. And now with, with some of my friends, I never was on a long duration flight, but 
my my friends who are, I think it becomes even more important to stay connected. And so being able to support each other, um, it, 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 it's amazing. I thought like when I was before I flew in space that sending email or a note or a picture or something to a crew member who was up there was kind of bothering them. Oh, they're busy. But what I found after flying in space was that you really live for that stuff. And I find that the notes that I send to my friends who are in space now, uh, they, they get answered pretty quickly and are very much appreciated. So think about who else I, I think for in this, in this case, I think about who else might, might I want to try to reach out to because everyone wants to hear from people and it makes you feel better connecting as well. So I think staying connected to people, to friends, to current events, to the things that you love are really important. Looking out the window of the spaceship always made me feel good. Looking at our planet. I think going outside when you can, of course, there's, there's rules that we want to follow and want to use good sense. But looking out a window now, I'm looking out a window right now and into the backyard is really pretty. And getting a chance to go outside for a walk once or twice a day, I think, is important. Do that with good, good sense. But I think those are the things that I found were important in space. Having a regular routine, getting up on time, uh, taking care of yourself uh, health-wise, hygiene, food, sleep activities, playing games when you can, doing meaningful work. It's really important to keep up with that. If you if you don't, you're liable to end up in a downward spiral that will make you feel very upset. Morale is very important and you need to keep it up in situations when you are isolated. Mike, finally, I want to ask you um, about the recent round of NASA astronaut applications. Um, NASA received more than 12,000 people um, who applied for this. The time before that, it was some 18,000 people. Um, as someone who has worked to get people excited and interested in space exploration and, and NASA, hearing those numbers, how does that make you feel? Those are pretty good numbers. When I was applying, it was uh, we had like five or six thousand, I think, back. I think uh, NASA's uh, trying to spread the word to get people excited about applying. But I think the bigger number is how many they're going to the more important number, I would say, is how many they're going to pick. Eight men and eight women uh, the last time they, they chose a class. I think before that it was about a dozen. Um, so when I was picked, we had the largest class tied for the largest amount of number of Americans, 35 Americans and nine international astronauts. So my astronaut class had 44 new astronauts, um, 35 Americans. And uh, we were picking astronauts every two years for the shuttle program. So I think the more important number is how many are they going to choose? Um, I think it's great that we have a lot of people interested. Um, I, I hope that the number starts increasing now that we have more ways to get to space uh, with the uh, Boeing spacecraft, the the um, the, uh, the 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 spaceship they're they're uh, developing, also the SpaceX uh, Crew Dragon that's going to be ready for uh, for launch, hopefully in mid-May. We're hoping. Um, I think that's going to increase the demand. Also, I think these private companies are going to have options. For people to get into space, um, maybe working for private companies. So I hope it'll expand the number of people that will get into space. Now, those who will get in as tourists and maybe a scientist that go just on a flight as opposed to the career astronaut, I think that's a different job description there, of course. But still, I hope there's more opportunities for people who want to go who can go. And I hope that the numbers that NASA is able to pick will go up. Um, and we're only picking every four years, a handful every four years. I would like to see those numbers go up and I'd like to see them pick more frequently. So it's great that a lot of people are applying, but I think it's going to be even better when we can get more people actually up there. 
Well, we've been speaking with retired NASA astronaut Mike Massimino. His book, Spaceman, An Astronaut's Unlikely Journey to Unlock the Secrets of the Universe, has been adapted for young readers. It's called Spaceman, the True Story of a Young Boy's Journey to Becoming an Astronaut, and it's available now. Mike, thanks so much for speaking with us. Brendan, I really appreciate the time and uh, stay healthy. There's more to that conversation that didn't make it to the show. We spoke about Mike's work on the Hubble Space Telescope. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast version of the show or look for it in your feeds. We'll post the bonus content later this week. Still to come, taking in the beauty of the universe from our own backyards. A crash course in amateur astronomy. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. With so many of us staying at home, what can we do to pass the time? Our panel of expert physicists say now is a great time to do some stargazing. Here to give us a crash course in backyard astronomy from our expert scientists, we've got Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. They're physicists at the University of Central Florida and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Addie kicks off the conversation. Uh, you can walk outside. That's a great start. Uh, preferably at night um, in order to see the night sky. Actually, it's kind of interesting right now. I think that in some regions, um, there's been an alleviation of pollution. So the night skies actually might be better uh, right now than they have been in a while, which is kind of an interesting uh, phenomena. But but honestly, right, to, to start doing night sky observing, all you need are your eyeballs and maybe a nice blanket or something uh, and go outside and look up. A dark sky is also a critical part of that. If you're if you're in a city or brightly lit environment, um, some that's going to be a little bit more challenging. Um, if you're in a more rural or dark sky environment, yeah, it, it, there's a lot you can do just by gazing up and identifying constellations with a star finder, which you can put on your phone. Yeah, let's talk about some of those resources. I mean, what is out there uh, for people to use um, to just give them a sense of what they're actually looking at? Yeah, like you used to have to haul out your like star atlas and everything like this and uh and have a, a light to look at it nowadays uh, if you have a smartphone which most folks have these days that there are like a zillion different apps that do basically the same thing i think the one i have on my phone is called planets but i'm in no way advertising that one over any other one there's a whole bunch where you open the app and just point your phone and it shows you exactly what's behind where your phone is constellation wise planet wise uh sun and moon and all those various things so you can navigate your way around the sky, you know, without having to play around with star finders or anything like that. It's great. Yeah. And if you are sort of, um, if you maybe don't have the app on your phone, there are some websites that you can go to. Um, if you go to like the astronomy magazine website, um, if you go to a website called heavens above, those are both resources where you can put in your location and like what day and time you want to go out and look up and you can even print a map if you want, or just have it, have that reference there, um, to use, to see what's up and what's going to be changing over the next few hours. Right, because it's not a static thing, right? It all it depends on where you're at, what time of year it is, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah, I mean, if you're in the northern hemisphere, there's generally similar stars, but it varies from night to night, especially like which planets are up will vary uh, from night to night and over the course of the year, um, what phase of the moon is in, things like that are going to make, are, are going to vary. There are some other uh, things that can happen occasionally, like right now we're tracking a comet called uh, Comet Atlas, that's on its way inbound, and it got brighter a little bit faster than expected, which has a lot of people hoping against hope that maybe this will become a very bright comet, even potentially uh, visible in the daytime. Although we've had those hopes before, and frequently they fizzle out. It's a comet that hasn't been seen before, so it might just be getting rid of all of its volatile gases far away from the sun at 
might peter out, but there are things like that that pop up as well. Aside from that, what else uh, is is exciting or what should we be looking at, um, you know, that's going to be happening in the night sky uh, in the coming days? We'll start with Addie's favorite object. The moon. <laughs> that tends to be on a regular uh, cycle there, right, Addie? We can we can usually see it the moon. Does. It does. Uh, it, I mean, you have to make sure. So actually, like, night sky observing is harder during a full moon because it tends to be bright, and so it makes it harder to see other objects sometimes. Um, but it's still pretty spectacular. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's really cool to see at any phase, and often when it's um, not full, so when it's in a crescent or a, or a first quarter or something like that, or third quarter, you can see right along the edge the, between day and night. It's called the Terminator line. Um, and if you look with like binoculars or something even, you can see sort of crater features and um, sort of topography there where you can see that there's mountains and craters, and it's a pretty cool to look at cool jim what, what do you think uh, we should be looking for uh planets i, I you know if you have a binoculars or a small, small telescope the coolest things to look at in the night sky are Eddie's favorite the moon and then the handful of bright planets specifically jupiter where you can see the uh, moons if you have a even a, a big pair of binoculars um saturn where you can see the rings mars where you can see that it's a planet you know a disc and not just a point of of, of light uh, I think, unfortunately, right now, if you want to see the cool planets, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, uh, you have to get up early in the morning. Uh, so they're visible at night, but before dawn, uh, in the pre-dawn hours for the next uh, few months. And then Venus is the one uh, evening, very visible thing. So Venus is going to be super bright in the western skies these days. And that's a cool thing to look at, but it tends to be really, really bright. Uh, and wash out, but maybe you can even see the phase of Venus if you look at it carefully. I was going to say one other thing is in uh, later April, the 20-something, there is a uh, meteor shower, uh, one of the lesser-known ones, the Lyrids, uh, that appear in the constellation of Lyra, uh, which occasionally are awesome, but usually kind of suck. So keep your eyes <laughs> open. You might, you might just see uh, a really special thing, April 22nd or something like that. Did, did you? Are you the one who left the review of this podcast um, with those words? Jim, <laughs> that sounds very familiar. <laughs> uh, several people mentioned how, how you can see a lot of cool things just with binoculars. And uh, if you want to make a small investment, get a stand for those binoculars to hold them stable. That holding up a big pair of binoculars, especially holding it steady, is difficult. Um, but a stand really makes it uh, great. And a lot of these things that, that uh, Jim and Addie mentioned don't need to be greatly magnified or needed a giant telescope to see it. It's just amazing things you can see with a nice pair of binoculars. I think you can also see um, the Andromeda galaxy with binoculars. So uh, if you look toward the constellation Andromeda, there's sort of this smudge uh, in the sky, and that's actually the Andromeda galaxy. Um, and so you can see that actually with binoculars, and it's so big that it, when you look with a telescope, you're only seeing part of it. So it's actually great to see with binoculars. Cool. Well, uh, yeah. look for that smudge and uh, send in your pictures of, of your setup, um, and we'll share them on our, our Twitter page. You can email them to me at are we there yet at wmfe.org. We've been speaking with uh, Josh Caldwell, Addie Dove, and Jim Cooney. They're scientists at the University of Central Florida and also host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Uh, thank you all for being here. Thanks. Enjoy the night sky. Be sure to check out their podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Get it where you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. 
Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Production assistance from Monica Seeley. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Show your support for this show and the local journalism you rely on by making a donation at WMFE.org. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.